Thank you for joining me at the Ghost Light. My name is Matt Morris, and I want to get to the bottom of what inspires the average theater professional. There are a lot of people to talk to, so let's get to work. Thanks for listening to the sixth episode of The Ghost Light. If you've liked the past episodes, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Let me know how I'm doing. Am I boring? Would you like to see certain people or certain professionals? You can get in contact with me at TGLPod on Twitter and Facebook. I'm hoping to get theater professionals of all types, but I only have so many connections and would love some recommendations. Reach out to me and we'll see if we can get something going. In this episode, I have a chat with Harry Parker, the theater department head at TCU. We open up by discussing his connection to Gypsy the Musical, then move into his experiences as a director and educator. Harry is the kind of person who could make the phone book interesting, so please enjoy. How are you, Matt? I'm doing very well. Thank you for agreeing to do this. Yes, you have a wife again. <laughs> I do have a wife. She's actually sitting on the couch Is... right next to me. <laughs> Making faces. <laughs> Making faces at me like she always does. That's her job. And congratulations for still being married. That's oh, well, good. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's hard work, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have, you're going to have an adjustment to make now for the last few months. Yeah, you can do yeah, it. yeah. I th- it comes naturally, yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. I think so too. Great, great. Uh, well, just kind of how I've been starting these shows is just asking the person that I'm talking to just kind of walk me through uh, their life. So, like, when did you start in the theater to where you are right now? Well, I um, I grew up in Oklahoma City, and my dad was a veterinarian, and my mom was a an elementary school teacher who quit teaching when she had kids and stayed home was was the practice pretty commonly back then. And and I don't remember really them ever taking us to the theater. Maybe one time there was a children's theater program at Oklahoma City University and they did a production of Winnie the Pooh. And that was one of our favorites in terms of children's literature. We read a lot, went to the movies a lot, but that's the one, I think that's really the first time I remember being taken to the theater, and I'm pretty sure it was before the the Disney animated Winnie the Pooh came out in the mid '60s. So the costumes were terrible. That's what I remember, and I just thought, well, this is lame. You know, I'm probably five years old, thinking, well, this is lame. I I, I don't I didn't like it at all. And so I certainly uh, didn't ask to be taken back to the <laughs> after that experience. Um, and then I, I sort of discovered theater in school 
as a, an elective. I think it was called speech, and you did went to speech contests in what we called junior high, seventh and eighth grade. And I, I kind of had a friend who said, you should try this. And I kind of did. And I thought it was okay, but I wasn't really sold on it. And then this is a true story. In, in ninth grade, and when I was a freshman in high school, there was I was in the band. I, I played the saxophone, and I was in the marching band, and I was standing outside the, the band room one day talking to a, a bunch of the other band geeks like me. And across the hall, there was this classroom, and I didn't know what the classroom was. And I'm just standing there watching, and pretty girl after pretty girl went in there. And I'm figuring it's home ec, right? You know, I said, what is that classroom? And they said, oh, that's drama. And I said, I think I'm interested in drama. But, you know, I, it's a true story. I, I enrolled in drama, and there were about five guys and about 25 really good-looking girls. It was a great deal. What can I tell you, Matt? And, and, and that's when I really kind of got started doing theater. And, and I, I did a few plays, but, but the, the play that I, that I remember seeing that startled me was a, a national tour of the musical Gypsy. And I was probably, oh, 15. And, and I took a date, but I couldn't drive. She was a, I think I was a sophomore and she was a senior. So, you know, I wow. was, I was digging up. But she had a car and, and she could drive and, and I wanted to take her out someplace and impress her. And I said, let's, I saw the ad in the newspaper. So let's go see this musical they're bringing to town, um, Gypsy. And I didn't know anything about it. I had seen musical movies, of course, um, but I don't think I'd ever seen a musical on stage. You know, when I think about my students now that have grown up being in musicals, uh, I was pretty naive at 15 and didn't know much about them. And I certainly didn't know what this show was about. I might have been slightly embarrassed to have taken this girl to a show about burlesque and a stripper, but I, I didn't know. And so we went downtown to the Civic Center Music Hall in Oklahoma City and settled into our seats to watch Gypsy. Now, um, I didn't really know this woman who was the the star, whose name was above the title, but I I figured it out pretty fast. Her name was Angela Lansbury. Mm. And yeah, and um, and so here I am seeing Angela Lansbury and Gypsy and not knowing who she is or what I'm about to see. And if you know Gypsy, the, the opening scene... Um, is a, an audition uh, for the the kids in the little kitty burlesque show. And Mama Rose makes an entrance down the aisle and is real bossy. And you get the idea right away that she's uh, a force to be reckoned with. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a soft opening. It's a mild opening, but the second scene of gypsy, she is trying to talk her crotchety father into giving her more money so she can take her two little girls out and, and make it in vaudeville. And he's heard this before and says no. And she sings a song called Some People. And it, it blew the doors off my car. I, I, I had never seen storytelling like that. I had never seen acting or heard singing like that. And what happened is in three minutes or so, whatever length that song runs, understood that I understood exactly who she was. Yeah. The, the compression of the exposition. These are words I wouldn't have used at age 15, but, <laughs> but my understanding of her so completely, so quickly took my breath away. And, and I thought this is a kind of storytelling. I don't think I really knew about before. 
because I, in that song, as, as is the brilliance of the song, is written by Julie Stein and Stephen Sondheim, names I didn't know at that point, I really admired her and I really kind of disliked her at the same time, yeah. which is Mama Rose. And how did they do that in three and a half minutes? I, you know what I mean? I was gobsmacked. And I remember just really literally having my mouth hanging open when she sang, some people sit on their butts, got the dream, yeah, but not the guts. I was like, well, I, I see it all. I understand exactly who this woman is. And there's a there's a famous tag to that number. She, she sings, well, they can sit and rot, but not rose. And she has a big note. And then she comes back after her father's left the room and steals the solid gold plaque he got for working at the railroad for 30 years. And you know she's going to go hawk it to get the money he wouldn't give her. And then she slams the door on the final button. You know, just simple musical staging. But to me, it was um, knockout. It was just knockout. And as I, I think, you know, and then the show continues and it's funny and it's and it's sad and it's pretty sexy, all of which were things that appealed to me <laughs> at age 15. <laughs> yeah, 15 yeah. And I remember, yeah, I remember very clearly that that first act curtain. When you get to the end of the first act of Gypsy, she's been this kind of monster, this tyrannical stage mother who's forcing her, her younger daughter to be a performer kind of against her will and then also not allowing her to grow up. So you see the little girl as a juvenile, as a child, and then she gets to be a teenager and she's still having to do the same rotten act that she did when she was a little girl, not being able to grow up. And so the oppressive hand of this mother trying to, to dictate uh, success for, for these kids. And finally, the, the girl whose name is June runs away. You know, she's she's a, a lovely and one of the boys has a crush on her and they run off together to go get married. She's probably 15 or 16 years old, about the age I was. And she runs away from this mean old mother. And you think, oh, good. Finally, maybe the mother will figure it out. Rose will settle down, retire, quit being this person who's living vicariously through someone else. But instead, she turns to the older daughter who has it's been well-established, has no talent. And she says, you, I'm going to make you a star. And she sings this incredibly upbeat song that they wrote for Ethel Merman, Everything's Coming Up Roses, which out of context is this sort of great optimistic anthem, right? You know, the, the world's going to get better and, and we're going to get through it and it's our time and everything's going to be wonderful. In the context of the show, it is terrible. And terrifying because she's so blind and myopic and mean and her tunnel vision is a detriment to the people that she loves. And we all see it, including Louise, who's petrified, and her boyfriend, Herbie, who's frustrated because he wants to go settle down. And, and so I remember at 15 when that first that curtain came down, I thought, I am having such a mixture of emotions. Here was Angela Lansbury killing the song, which sounds upbeat as she's trying to talk everybody into being um, optimistic. But I, I just felt terrible for all the characters. And I thought, what kind of a play is this? What, what kind of a musical is this? And it was, you know, the essence of bittersweet. And it was far more complex and richer than... I was expecting. And then there's one other moment that, that, that happened in that show that I want to tell you about. And, and if you know Gypsy, 
as you get close to the end of the show and, and uh, June never comes back and Louise really by accident becomes a stripper in a burlesque show. And then she becomes a successful stripper. And then she becomes the world's most famous stripper, Gypsy Rose Lee, and, and is very rich and a celebrity and is living a very um, high life and enjoying it. Uh, despite the fact that she still has no talent, <laughs> she's manipulated the system into becoming a star and her mother is left out in the cold. And, and Louise is now this grown woman, a star, and her bossy mother can be pushed to the side. And so she is. And so the big climactic number of the piece is a song called Rose's Turn, which now I know because I teach musical theater history and oh, Gypsy's probably still my favorite musical, is a compilation of most of the songs that we've heard all the way through the show. And and it's a, a, a musical nervous breakdown. And Mama Rose is really reached a crossroads where she knows she's not needed anymore. And, and she asks herself the profound question, why did I do this? Why did I push these people who are only going to push me into the background? You know, and, and she acknowledges that she did it for herself. She was the one who wanted the attention. She was the one who wanted to be the performer. And she forced it on first one daughter and then a second. And she has this terrible kind of emotional breakdown. But here's what I remember. It's, it's a, of course, it's just a boffo number. And, um, and she, and it finishes huge and, and the audience that, you know, she's out on the runway, the, the, the burlesque runway, and there's a, a big electric sign that says Rose behind her with chasing lights and all of that. So it's this huge finish musically, the trumpets are wailing and there's a tremendous uh, ovation from the audience. They're clapping and clapping and clapping. Now, I don't know the show, right? I've never seen it before. Angela Lansbury, as Mama Rose, begins to bow during the applause. And I thought, oh, the show's over. This is curtain call. She's taking her bow. And she keeps bowing and bowing to the audience. But you know, here's what she did, Matt. She, she kept bowing until finally the audience stopped clapping. And then in silence, she kept bowing. And we came to realize that she wasn't acknowledging the real applause in the Civic Center Music Hall at all. She was bowing to the imaginary audience that she heard that clapped even longer than the one in Oklahoma City did. And, and it was a, a sign of near madness in the character to be that self-indulgent in her fantasies. So it, it, was, it went from this huge, successful showbiz musical theater moment to a chilling, you could hear a pin drop acting moment. And again, the, the quick reversal just, it, it blew me away. It blew me away. That was a night that I uh, have thought about often. Uh, and, and I can remember those moments in particular. Some people and the, everything's coming up roses and the end of roses turn um, more clearly than I can tell you what I had for lunch today. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, that's that's very powerful, obviously. So it, when I said inspirational, is that sort of synonymous with your, your favorite show, or is this just a show that you do remember fondly? Um, I, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know that that night when I went home, I thought, I have to work in the theater, or I have to be in musical theater. or But, but I, I think the show has stuck with me 
not only because it was really the first show that, that excited me. And I thought, oh, this is a sophisticated art form. This is not just uh, singing and dancing. There, there was psychological depth and depictions of less than perfect people, and, and th- but yet three-dimensional. You know, again, back to that first number, I loved Mama Rose and I didn't love her in, in that three and a half minutes. And, and, and I, I hadn't really experienced that to that degree before. And of course, a, a lot of the feelings I had were because we were in the hands of such a superb actress. I figured everybody was like Angela Lansbury. You know, I hadn't seen any musicals. So I thought, oh, they're all this good. No, they aren't. Uh, <laughs> but, but that one was. I, I think the reason that Gypsy has stayed with me beyond just the impressionable events of that night for me is because of its content, is because of its theme, which is um, the sense that everybody wants to be noticed and everybody wants to be valued. It's common in in musicals and in plays and in show business pieces. I, I think I think Assassins says the same thing. I think um, I think a chorus line is treading in the same territory. We all want to be seen, known, valued, and loved. We all want that. We all need that. And and the show I think speaks to that this this desire and 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 in Mama Rose's case this misplaced desire she couldn't find the the career that she wanted and so she required it from her daughters in a in a rather cruel way and did, did she love them yes did she take care of them yes did she abuse them yes <laughs> you know kind of all of those things. Um, and so the desperation that some people feel to to reach the kind of affirmation that they need in life, uh, I, I think that's why the show remains resonant to a lot of people, but especially to me. And then I ended up, you know, making a career in the theater and becoming a director, mm-hmm. trying to help tell stories that require actors to become vulnerable. Um, to be open, to take risks, uh, the same kinds of things. And, and so in many ways, I, I feel kind of the tendrils of, of Gypsy um, continuing to, to wrap themselves around my life because I, I made a, a decision a few years later to, to, to try to stay in the theater for the rest of my life. And, and so, that, yeah, I, I kind of I hear the echoes of that show uh, the fact that people want to be noticed. And, you know, one of the things that's true for me as a director is uh, I'll sit through a series of auditions. I'll be auditioning a show at TCU or I'll be auditioning a professional show. Or just this past week, I was in Nebraska and I saw almost 600 high school students audition to to be in college theater programs. That's a lot, Matt. And, you know, each time somebody walks out there and slates, as we say, they say their name and they say what they're going to do, there's just that that one moment before they begin where, you know, I just, I say a little prayer, you know, uh, part of the prayer I will confess is for me. <laughs> I hope they're good. <laughs> Please be yeah, good. Yeah. Right. But part Makes of it, it is, easier. yeah, yeah, yeah. Solve my problem. Be wonderful. Be somebody I, I want to work with. But part of it is also for them. Uh, you know, I, I hope it goes well. And, and, you know, bless you for having the guts to stand up here and do this. Because it takes guts, 
And, you know, those, those kids, some of them were 16 years old and there were a hundred college representatives in the room watching them. And a couple of them crumbled under the pressure. They couldn't remember the words that they knew that they knew. And, you know, the room was very gracious and sit down and we'll let you try it again here in a few minutes, kind of collect your wits, you know, we were all rooting for them, but, um, it's, a it's a universal desire to want to be noticed, to be valued, to be loved. And, and Gypsy tapped into that for me. And I feel like I've spent my whole life trying to help people cross that bridge. So you did touch on it that, that you're an educator. I mean, you were the head of the theater department at TCU. How did you get there? Because did you pursue performance before that? Or, you know, did you know that you wanted to be a director after you saw Gypsy? No, I certainly didn't know it at 15. I, I thought I was going to be an actor and uh, I enjoyed acting and um, <laughs> talking about damning with faint praise. I was the best actor at my high school. <laughs> so, you know, I just assumed that, that uh, my career would just open up for me. I, uh, high school in Oklahoma city, I, I did plan to be an actor and I came to TCU. I, I chose that school for a variety of reasons, but I, I went there to study theater and to become an actor. And when I got to, to college, I, I got cast pretty often, you know, it's easier if you're a guy, it was then it still is There's less competition if you're a guy, but I also was able to look around and, and think, Oh, you know, there's about 30 guys here better than me. That was not the case at my high school, but here, you know, there are people like an actor, you know, David Coffey. And I thought, okay, now that guy's an actor, you know? And so I, I, you know, I was friends with him. I was in shows with him. I, I tried to learn from him. You know, copy him. Um, but my my talents were modest in comparison to many of the people that I saw. So I, when I think about my my acting, and I, I've acted maybe three or four times since I was an undergraduate, not very often. I, I, everybody says, "Oh, it's so good for you to do it." And then every time I do it, I think, I, "I'm not sure this was good for me." Uh, <laughs> it was just humbling. I I was an actor who was uh, always watching myself acting. And, and I think it came from good motivation. I was trying to be better. I was trying to take the notes. I was trying to improve my performance. But there's, a, there's certainly, a, I, know, I know more about acting for others than I can do on myself. Um, there's a point at which you need to stop watching yourself and, and just relax and, and be the other person, do the things that you've rehearsed. That was always a tough leap for me, which I think now in hindsight, I can tell you was uh, the director in me who wanted to be outside of the scene, watching it and, and, and helping it along. And so I took a directing class because I was required to as a junior and I wasn't very interested in taking it, but about a month in, I thought, Oh, wait a minute. I, I might be better at this than acting. And I, I think I am. I, I don't know that I'm a great director, but I can promise you this, Matt, I'm a better director than I am. Actor. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I was really, I was really grateful. I remember praying and saying to God, thank you, because it had to be the theater. I was desperately in love with the theater. I was going to work in the theater if it meant, you know, sweeping and mopping. So I was delighted to find something that I seemed to have uh, a kind of a natural gift for, and, and directing was it. And so then, because I was wanting to be a director and because I was very good at school, I was always a really, really good student, and I liked school. I loved being in college a lot. I thought, I, I think maybe 
I think maybe teaching is the way to go for me because I was happy to go right to grad school and I did um, and got a master's and a PhD and then started a, an academic theater career. And I've been fortunate to, to always keep my hand in as a professional. That's ideally what academics want to do most of the time is, is have both a professional career and an academic career. And it's been easiest for me to do that in the last 14 years when I've been at TCU because I'm in a, a big market. And there's a lot of professional theater here. It was a lot harder when I was working in small town Iowa or small town Kansas. But I did, in the summer sometimes, um, find the ability to go get some professional gigs. And and, and that was fun. But um, these years have been the most satisfying for me. I've, I've directed more shows outside of TCU than I have at TCU in the last 14 years. Because I can... I can do it in three weeks, and it's usually about twice that to do a university production. So um, that's how I got to where I am. I mean, I, I worked a couple of places, as I said, before I got hired to join the faculty at TCU, but it's been a, a real pleasure to be at a, a school this good with students as talented. So um, you have a unique perspective on this, and you kind of touched on this yourself. What would you maybe say to a freshman in college that's maybe struggling with the idea of not doing performance or not doing what they originally thought and maybe having to follow a different path? Yeah. Um, you know, just to kind of keep your, keep your mind and your heart open because mm-hmm. uh, it's, a, it's a cliche, but, but it's a journey that we're on. And the statistics show that most undergraduates today will change careers, not just jobs, careers five times in their life. My guess is that the, when that number is much smaller for theater people, they tend to be pretty singular focused early on as a youngster. But you know, if they, if they love the theater, like I did and they get there and they think, Oh, maybe acting isn't it for me. There's a lot of other careers in the theater. And and there are a lot of careers that are not glutted with people who want to be in the mic acting. So if you want to be a scenic painter and you become a great one, you can work anywhere you want to, you know, anywhere in the country. You can be a scenic painter if you're good. So there's there's a lot of, and I can think of a couple of people that came to TCU to be actors that ended up to be professional scenic painters. It, it just happens that way, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You find your you find your niche if if you can not beat yourself up over the fact that uh, acting may not be it for you. But you know the other side of that coin is this, Matt. Um, I do believe that if acting is the only thing that will make you happy and you're not very good at it, that you can get a lot better at it. I, I think talent is a real thing and it's certainly valuable. But there have been people who have made themselves into really great professional actors who started with almost no talent. I might have been able to if I hadn't been so discouraged <laughs> by seeing all the better people around me. If instead of thinking, God, I got to find something else to do, I had said to myself, I'm going to work five times harder than anybody else, then I might have had mm-hmm. enough ability to, to build my, myself into a professional actor. So I, I do think that hard work counts for much, much more than talent in a professional acting career. It's best to have both. So that when you, as, as a teacher, when you have a student who is really talented and wants to outwork everybody, okay, then you got something. 
then you have somebody yeah. that you can look at and say, okay, this person is going to have a career. That's definitely a special kind of person, very rare. It, it, yes, right. It, it's one in a hundred. But when you come across them, you just think, wow, that's exciting because uh, they have what we call the fire in the belly. They have that drive to do it no matter what and to pay the price no matter what. And they have a lot to start with. So yeah, that, that's, that's a great package. Well, I just have uh, one final question for you. Uh, this is just something I've been asking everybody at the end of all of these. And, and you were obviously, you've, you came from acting, now you're an educator, you've done directing, so you can answer this from any perspective you want. But what is maybe your dream role or your dream show to direct? Have you already done that? Because you've had a long career so far, so that's definitely possible. Yeah, but you know, the irony of that question is is that uh, your your wish list doesn't get shorter as you get older. It just gets longer because you see more shows, you read more shows, you become aware of more shows that you'd like to work on. I certainly don't dream of acting. That that does not keep you awake at night. I did. I think the last time I acted was about uh, 2000, 2001, shortly before I came to TCU. And I played the stage manager in our town, which is a role that I did. I did kind of have on my wish list and and it was a it was a task to learn the words. I, I did, and and thought thought it went pretty well. But I I don't sit around thinking, gosh, I'd like to act again. In terms of directing, there's a lot of shows that I'd like to do. I, I did get to do Sweeney Todd um, just a couple of months ago here at TCU, and it was it was really a thrill because I'm I'm such a Sondheim file. I love his work so much, and I've directed several of his shows, but that one. I was afraid would would be out of our reach because it's so difficult. But um, we had the right people, and and it was a really uh, satisfying uh, production. So I'm I'm thrilled about that one. I'd I'd be happy to do any of his works that I haven't done. Some more than others, of course. But there's a play that I I really am itching to do, and I don't know how to do it because it's eight hours long, and it's <laughs> Life and Adventures of Nicholas Nickleby. And I saw the, the Royal Shakespeare Company production of it um, back in the 80s when they first came over. And I saw it again at uh, Missouri Rep, which is now Kansas City Rep in, in uh, Kansas City. And it was also a great production. And there's a there's a TV production of the RSC original cast. So you can probably watch it on YouTube. But it's two four-hour plays that, that are produced in conjunction with each other on consecutive nights or on one long day with a matinee and a dinner break in an evening. And, um, it, it's thrilling to me. It's based on uh, a novel by Dickens, which is excellent, though not one of his very most famous, but one of his long ones. And that's saying something. It's about 1,500 pages as a novel. And so what they did is try not to uh, cut a lot of the narrative. It's an epic, of course, and it's about a young man. Um, it's it's typical Dickensian plot. It's a, it's a young man about twenty who uh, is thrown out into the world when the father dies, and he has to find a way to make a living to uh, support a, a mother and sister. And there are many adventures that happen along the way during the course of the eight hours. But but the theme of it is you know if you don't know anything about Dickens except Christmas Carol, you'll recognize the theme. The theme is mankind should be your business. Uh, the theme of Nicholas Nickleby is is our job is to take care of each other. And it seems to me to be a, a really simple but profound and important and timeless message. 
And along the way, Nickleby becomes an apprentice in a, a kind of a cruel boys' home where the boys are treated terribly and abused by an, an evil headmaster. And there's a uh, an, some kind of developmentally challenged young man named Smike that he befriends, and they escape together, and they have many of their adventures together. But but Nicholas has has found one soul that needs him, and and works very hard to take care of him and to protect him from the evil of the world that he'd been experiencing. And um, near the end of the story, uh, Smike dies. And there's happy endings all around for all of the good characters. It's it's melodramatic as Dickens always is. But but the final moments of the play, when the chorus is singing "God rest you merry gentlemen" and it's snowing, and Nickleby walks outside and he sees another boy, huddled, hungry and alone, and he picks him up. You know that he'll go on and find other people to help. And so it may sound cheesy in my description of it, but I found it. Um, profoundly moving. And I think it would be a really (laughs) nearly impossible challenge, which is why I'm kind of fixated on it. How would I do that at a university? You know, you you know, the structure here at TCU would probably have to be both main stage shows in a semester because we'd have to rehearse it all semester. You know, the actors that would be in those shows are not um, just acting. They have to pass biology and, uh, (laughs) So I I don't know. I'd have to have quite a grid and a chart. You know, it's twice as many men as women. And, you know, there's just a lot of things to chew on. I don't know whether I'll ever figure out how to do it, but I I haven't given up on it. I'm still thinking about it. Um, If if anyone can do it, you can, Harry. You you say the nicest things, Matt. (laughs) Um, I I hope that's true. And and if I do it, I'll, I'll call you and Sophie and you come see it, okay? I'd love to thank you for being on the show. It's a pleasure to hear your perspective. It's definitely a unique one. Um, so thank you so much for doing this. Matt, I really enjoyed it. You know, uh, I I always loved having you in my class. Um, you're a really thoughtful guy, and I appreciate the, the opportunity. It was really fun. Of course. Thank you so much, Eric. You have a great night. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you once again for listening to this episode. As I said before, I'm always looking for feedback. Let me know how I'm doing. In the next episode, I talk with a good friend from college, Jessie Little, about her experiences as a performer and her move to Seattle. We also touch on the new play, The Old Man and the Old Moon. If you like the intro music, check out Melandros on any music streaming service. If you like the outro, you can find Pachyderm the same way. I'll also put info in the show notes for you. Thanks for joining me at The Ghost Light.